Hello and welcome to the DWD Podcast, a weekly look at the progress of the Voluntary Assisted Dying Law in Victoria. We've got about a fortnight until Victorian MPs begin debating the bill in Parliament, and media coverage of the Voluntary Assisted Dying issue is really starting to pick up. Last week, a particularly great piece was featured in The Age, which told the story of Victorian paramedic Jenny Moncur. Jenny has worked as a nurse and a paramedic for over 40 years, uh, and for the majority of her life, she believed that she was opposed to the concept of assisted dying. In 2013, Jenny's husband Royce was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and his death death was uh, particularly bad, to the point where, much to Jenny's horror, his suffering was not able to be controlled. Uh, the experience has opened Jenny's eyes to the need for end-of-life choices for people with a terminal illness, such as her husband. Uh, it's a very powerful read, so check out the story. Uh, we'll include a link to, uh, to that story in the episode description. And now onto our main segment. The Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill of 2017 was tabled in the Victorian Parliament two weeks ago. Hopefully, uh, Victorian MPs have been reading the legislation and taking in all of the important aspects. In order to help everyone get their heads around the legislation, this week's interview is with Dying With Dignity Victoria President Leslie Vick. Now just before we get into it, I will say if you are following this issue and you have questions relating to the legislation and how the law will work, you can always send them uh, questions through to Dying With Dignity Victoria and we'll do our very best to keep you informed and obviously answer your questions. Send an email to comms at dwdv.org.au, that is c-o-m-m-s at dwdv.org.au, and we'll help you out. We're eager to make sure that everyone feels on top of this law. Uh, I think working out whether you support or oppose an assisted death uh, is a fairly simple task, but it's important to be across how a law will actually operate here in Victoria in regard to processes and access. Uh, so, send your questions on through. I thought it would be a great idea to run through some of the more important parts of legislation uh, just before Parliament dives into it. So I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think the standout parts of the legislation are and what the most important things people should be aware of. Well, I think in broad terms, the most important things that people need to know is that finally we have some legislation following, as we've discussed in the past, an extensive inquiry by an upper house committee and an expert advisory panel that recommended the framework for the legislation Legislation which I would describe as, as humane and compassionate, giving people a choice over control at the end of their life. There are stringent safeguards embraced in the legislation and there's very rigorous oversight to be set in place as well. This issue, of course, has caused a lot of controversy because people say there can't be enough safeguards and it's not a decision we should make. But the overwhelming public opinion in support of this, that is, assisted dying laws, uh, most people will welcome this legislation coming in. I'm quite sure there'll be a very robust debate in Parliament about it. Um, but I think the government has struck a very good balance uh, between safeguards and compassion, giving people control over their lives. So I'm just going to quick fire some important aspects if you'd like to comment on them. Uh, I know that back in the very first episode of this podcast, you went into quite a bit of detail about the past two years of development with the inquiry into end-of-life choices and then the ministerial advisory panel's work this year and just how important 
that has been in setting up the current debate. Vitally important, not only because we can be sure that the legislation that has now appeared in the parliament is based on a great deal of research, the recommendations that were evidence-based by both the Committee of Inquiry and the advisory panel, which was made up of experts across medical, nursing, palliative care, disability advocates and so on, you know, the expertise, legal expertise, they were all there. We know that this very, what I would consider as a very measured and responsible process has gone before what is now in front of the parliament. The government has described this as the most conservative model in the world for assisted dying. And let's not forget there are numerous jurisdictions overseas that have assisted dying regimes and they've been in place for a very long time. The Committee of Inquiry was able to learn from that. The Ministerial Advisory Panel, not only from that, but from community consultations in both cases. So we've got public opinion, we've got research from overseas, the experience of overseas and the experts who all came together, together with talking to members of the community and other stakeholders, including Dying with Dignity Victoria, to arrive at where they're at. I think the description of it being the most conservative is, is pretty spot on. There are different models around the world. This model is closest to the model in Oregon. And in terms of experience, it's been in place for nearly 20 years. So that provides a very good basis on which we can look at what happens when you put in place an assisted dying regime such as this. And we also have a, a very committed and passionate health minister now leading debate in Parliament uh, in the form of Jill Hennessy. Uh, your thoughts on how she, she has handled herself? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I would commend the minister for the role she's played in all of this. She, she set up the advisory panel, for example, after the Legislative Council committee report came down. So every step that's been taken throughout all this has been very careful. Um, she, of course, like a lot of people, has spoken of a personal experience in her life, a parent, um, and indeed the uh, Committee of Inquiry had a great many personal stories of that sort brought before us. And I think that explains why there is such strong public support for this sort of reform. People have had a loved one who've not had a good death. We're not talking here about a great many people who would be affected. Professor Brian Owler, for example, who chaired the uh, expert advisory panel, he's the immediate past president of the AMA, he made the point it won't be that many people. However, um, for them, we're talking about people facing death and suffering intolerably. And this will give them control and choice in their lives. And, and like you said, uh, that's all based on experience coming out of places like California, Oregon, uh, where we're getting these insights. Absolutely. I mean, just in now one in, uh, one in six Americans, I think, now would have access to assisted dying, the number of states that have such laws. Um, Canada, of course, has come on board in the last couple of years as well. And I would also point out that none of these places have uh, repealed their legislation since they've had it in place. Oregon, again, is a good example. People who are concerned about these sort of laws tend to say, oh, it won't work, it'll get worse, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, that has not happened. In Oregon, I think, again, to use them as the example, there hasn't been a slippery slope. There's been no change to the legislation in the nearly 20 years, but nor has there been any repeal of the legislation. So 
and they do very, very rigorous oversight there. Each year's report, I've looked at them and they're very detailed indeed. And that's what is envisaged in the legislation here. Uh, even to be eligible to access uh, assisted dying if the bill passes is a very rigorous process. All the parties involved in it, the two medical practitioners who have to be involved, the dispensing pharmacist, the department which has to issue a permit for the medication to be made available and all of this is going to be overseen by the Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board. It would report to Parliament once a year but every six months during the first two years of the legislation being in place. The legislation itself won't come into being until about 18 months have passed after it has passed in the Parliament. So all the training that's necessary and so on can be put in place as well. So we're not talking about people just being able to snap their fingers and get access to something which some people give the impression uh, is going to happen. Quite the contrary. It's going to be very rigorous, very strict. And some people I've had complained to me that it's too rigorous and too strict. So you're going to get complaints of that sort too. So you mentioned the 18-month implementation period. Uh, obviously, we're very focused on the debate before us and we don't want to get too far ahead, but presumably Dying With Dignity Victoria will be playing a role in providing information and support during that time? Of course. It's one of the, one of the roles we do have resource. We not only have the general resources that we use, but we have the expertise of Dr Rodney Syme in this area, which can also be utilised in that implementation period. That will be very important. Just as this whole careful process leading to the legislation coming into Parliament uh, has been a very measured and, and careful one in itself. Here in Victoria, a debate has been going on in the media for the better part of a year, dating back to when the inquiry recommended an end-of-life care framework. What are your thoughts on public discussion and media coverage so far? Well, the fact that we've got to the point of having the inquiry, then the ministerial advisory panel, and now finally the legislation, this has attracted media attention quite, quite reasonably. Um, the media gives plenty of airspace, all, all the bits of it. You're an expert in social media, um, the old-fashioned old mainstream media as well, to both sides of the debate, and that's quite right and proper. There will be a conscience vote in Parliament. It's quite right that something like this, the community uh, debates very carefully and, and in detail. The one thing I would say is I think everybody involved in this debate should be careful about the accuracy of what they're arguing. Um, sometimes quite outlandish claims are made by people. I hear, for example, people talking about doctors killing people. Now, <laughs> this regime that's proposed is one of self-ingestion. There are very rare instances where a person, because of their medical condition, may not be able to swallow, where they may need a medical practitioner to provide them with the medication. But its design is for uh, an adult Australian, normally resident in Victoria, with legal decision-making capacity, making a request. Doctors can't bring it up. They have to make three requests, one in writing. Two doctors have to be involved to determine their decision-making capacity. Permits have to be applied for and issued, dispensed by a pharmacist, and all of this comes before the Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board. So it's quite a bit of a process that people have to go through. So I think... And then it's self-ingestion. That's the point. Uh, so I think the language that people use, one of the reasons we use assisted dying, and I would point out the Committee of Inquiry adopted that expression too, is very important. Sometimes people call it assisted suicide, but suicide and assisted dying are different things. 
suicide is a person making a choice between living and dying. Often they might have mental illness that's relevant to that, not always, but assisted dying is a person making a choice about the circumstances in which they die when they are facing death. As things stand, they can choose to decline treatment, for example, and die of an infection because they don't take antibiotics. They can decline food and drink. These rights have been uh, protected by law for quite a long time. So we're talking about choosing the, the having control over the circumstances of your death, not other people killing you. And I guess that just really speaks to all the safeguards in the bill being so targeted towards everything being voluntary, that one particular word. Very, very important. When you talk about the media coverage, this I, I do get, it makes my blood boil a bit whenever the media just says euthanasia without the word voluntary in front of it. I mean, it's most important that people are precise in what they're talking about here and they reflect actually accurately what the legislation is proposing to do. So you've been an advocate for voluntary assisted dying for quite some time. Uh, the high watermark for the assisted dying debate in Australia is the law that operated briefly in the Northern Territory back in 1997. What, what changes have you noticed in the discussions that are taking place? Uh, how, how have conversations about assisted dying progressed in 20 years? Well, even that was part of a change in public opinion over time. As time has gone on, people are living longer, among other things. Um, people of the baby boomer generation, for example, are people who used to are used to having the right to make decisions about their own medical treatment. There was a period when the god doctor, you know, tended to make the decisions. That in itself has changed. But as people have lived longer, that's had a bearing on people thinking about the circumstances in which they are going to die. So public opinion over that period of time has increased up to, you know, close to 80% now support for voluntary assisted dying legislation. The Northern Territory situation was different in two ways, I suppose. It was, as have all the other bills in Australia previously, a private member's bill that was put in place. Secondly, and crucially, because it was done in the Territory, the Federal Parliament was able to overturn the legislation. Legislation that's passed in a state, they can't do that. So that's a different state of affairs. But certainly in that 20 years, public opinion has continued to increase. And I think not just that, but people have become more insistent that this is what they want. They want control over the end of their lives as they've had control throughout their lives. That's the nature of the world today. And uh, I think it's unsurprising that that's where we've ended up with public opinion. I would also think that the collection of stories of people's bad deaths uh, have been also been building up over that 20 years to now where it's somewhat at breaking point. Um, well, not just, the, not just the tragic and painful deaths, but uh, the coroner's evidence to the inquiry about very moving and, and certainly the committee was very uh, very moved by John Ollie's evidence that some people are taking their lives prematurely um, because they're fearful they'll reach a certain point in their medical condition that they won't be able to do anything. So in lonely, violent, desperate circumstances they've done this and that's a tragedy. I mean, as one person who was a, an advocate for assisted dying, voluntary assisted dying, 
uh, put it, he wanted to be able to die at home with his wife and his son and his dog and have within his control the means, unfortunately, of course, he's died since and the law hadn't changed in that time. But that, that, that explains what a lot of people want. We know that most people want to die at home. We know people want to have control over the circumstances over their death. And in terms of what the coroner said, giving people that control will actually extend, not shorten, some people's lives. Rather than people taking precipitate, premature action, they will, and some of them won't even need to do that. Their suffering may not become intolerable. About a third of the people who are prescribed with the relevant medication in Oregon don't take it. But they relax and the quality of their life is much better. Yeah, that reminds me of a recent news article out of California that discussed the changes that have occurred in conversations between doctors and patients and how much uh, the Californian assisted dying law has helped people to have conversations uh, about their end-of-life choices that provide real benefits as they're coming towards the end of their life. No question about that. People really do need to be encouraged to talk about this, not only to their doctor, their family, their friends, so everybody's clear what the situation is, what the patient's feelings and views and values are in relation to this. All of these are immensely beneficial. You're quite right. These sort of stories, such as the one from California, make that point very clearly. As long as we have things happening under the radar, which is how it is now, it sort of tends to be taboo and people don't want to talk about it or they're scared about what's going to happen, etc., etc., etc. It's clearly better for everybody involved if it's an open, transparent, regulated system. I, I believe the main point of the Californian article is the early conversations that are taking place, so not leaving end-of-life planning until you're right at the end of your life. Uh, even if the person doesn't go on to have an assistant. Not at uh, all. The fact that you have the conversation is is a good and sensible yeah. thing to do. I mean, I mean, like my 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 partner and I, you know, have discussed these things. We've discussed it with the person who'd have you know involved as if we got old and sick and so on. You know, I mean, these are really important things in family circumstances and among your friendship circle as well as your medical advisors. That was Leslie Vick, President of Dying with Dignity Victoria, with an insight into the legislation soon to be debated here in Victoria. After we recorded that interview, uh, Leslie spoke a little bit about her experience with conscience votes on laws similar to assisted dying uh, in the past. She believes that because the MPs have a free vote in Parliament, it raises the quality of debate, as no one will be able to rely on party line. Uh, they have to do their own thinking, own research on, on the matter. Uh, I told Leslie that we will definitely hold her to that hypothesis and we will look to see if the upcoming debate is full of well-researched and factual claims from both sides. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, in the episode description, I will link off to a number of articles, including the story of Victorian paramedic Jenny Moncur, the LA Times article about how the Californian assisted dying law has prov provided great changes to how doctors and patients discuss end-of-life choices, and we'll also include a link to the Dying with Dignity Victoria statement on the tabling of legislation for you to read. Join us next week when we check in with assisted dying advocate and Dying with Dignity Victoria member Harry Gardner. Until next time, bye for now. Mm -hmm.